and during some of the toughest times, I have a little piece of paper in my wallet that I keep all the time, even to this moment, uh, of different things that I that mean to me, different sayings that mean a lot to me, uh, things that I strive for, recognizing my responsibility to give back. Reoccurring mantra I got into in college where I would just say, I'm going to break the mold. Two days after my second injury, my dad flew out to Indiana and we drove home. Went right up to my room, slept for a day, and then I woke up the next morning, I spray-painted my wall. No quitting me. I remember, you know, there is no quitting me and I won't, you know, I won't give up. The number one thing you gotta remember is your transferring energy. And whatever energy you got is the energy the viewers are going to have. You are listening to Intentional Performers with Brian Levinson, where we talk with experts of craft about their journey and what they have intentionally done to be their best self. As we talk with them, the hope is that we uncover intentional gems that you can use in your life. Now... Let's kick it over to Brian to introduce this week's guest. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the Intentional Performers Podcast. I am Brian Levinson. Excited to have you with us for another great episode today. But before we get to today's guest, I want to let you know how you might be able to help us out here at the podcast. So first of all, thank you for being here. Thanks for listening. Thanks for continuing to share these conversations on social media. If you like today's conversation, go over to iTunes and write us a review. It really helps us as we continue to try to expand our reach and reach new listeners who have not heard of the Intentional Performers Podcast. So thanks to all of you who continue to support this thing and and make it go. Now to today's guest. Scott O'Neill is the Chief Executive Officer of Harris Blitzer Sports and Entertainment, an organization with the mission of becoming the most impactful sports and entertainment company in the world through the pursuit of innovation and performance. And you're going to hear about Scott and his involvement with innovation and how much he values high elite performance for himself and also for the teams that he's involved with. Scott is responsible for the organization's leadership, strategic vision, operations, and growth, including the pursuit and acquisition of sports teams and organizations, entertainment, and consumer-facing properties. So Scott wears many hats and is involved with many different organizations, including the Philadelphia 76ers, the New Jersey Devils, the Prudential Center, which is a really busy arena, and it's a top five ranked performance venue in the U.S. located in Newark, New Jersey, which is where we recorded this podcast. He's also involved with Team Dignitas, an internationally renowned esports team, the Sixers Innovation Lab, the Delaware 87ers, which are the G League team to the 76ers, and the Binghamton Devils, which is an AHL minor league team. Also, he's involved with the Grammy Museum experience at the Prudential Center. So Scott is a busy guy, and I'm just really grateful that I got to spend time with him. He has over 20 years of experience in the NBA, NHL, and NFL. He's earned a reputation as a leader of leaders, so he really thinks deeply about mission, vision, values, and has earned a reputation as one of the best in the business when it comes to the business of sports. I could go on and on about his resume and what he's done in the past, but I think what's most interesting about Scott is that he really grounds himself in the present and really thinks about the culture and the culture that they're creating within these organizations and how they can continue to build a culture that's bigger than one person. So 
I know you're going to love this conversation with Scott. So without further ado, I'm so excited to present to you, Scott O'Neill. Scott, excited to have you on the podcast. Uh, I've enjoyed following you on LinkedIn and reading a lot of the articles that you put out there and messages you put out there. So you have been someone on my radar for a while. And I had Phil Weber, a uh, basketball coach. On. The great Phil Weber, offensive genius. He's, a, he's also a philosophy and he a poetry is. genius. <laughs> and uh, Phil is, is a special guy. And Good friend, an incredible coach. Yeah, and now a dad. I think soon to be, right? Is it soon to be? I think it's soon to be. Oh, good for him. Or maybe he had it. I forget exactly. Maybe by the time someone listens to this, he'll have the baby. Well, we'll check back with Phil and we'll give an update on that. Well, good luck, Phil. <laughs> and where I thought I'd start is, as I learned more about your story, I was really amazed about your family and your parents and their background in psychology. And so I'd love to start, just get an idea of what the childhood was like for you, what the house was like with your siblings and... Uh, what's some of the values that your parents passed down to you and your siblings? Sure. Well, that's a loaded question. Um, there were five of us um, within seven years of each other. So um, my brother, Sean, and I, my older brother, we're Irish twins, which means you're 11 months apart. And my brother, Michael, is 13 months younger than I am. And then Matthew came two years after that. And then my sister, Shannon, came two years after that. So we essentially were all the same age growing up. Um, it was it was quite a bit of chaos in the house. Uh, four boys and my sister Shannon, um, who ended up being an all-American athlete, incredible athlete, um, was raised in a rough and tumble house. Uh, uh, definitely a house filled with love. A hundred percent a laboratory for my parents. My dad at the time had his PhD and was a was a counselor and coach and did, started doing early early on in my childhood some uh, some team building and training. And that's became the family business. My mom had her master's in child education <clears throat> and was running a couple of schools, one for children with special needs and the other one just kind of a general population school. Um, she ended up later on going to get her Ph.D. So they were definitely very interested in, in people, the study of people, psychology of families. And um, boy, was it fun. Uh, we had very few rules in the house. Most kids grow up with, at least today, with curfews and don't do this and don't do that. We, we had... Um, don't hurt each other, don't hurt your mother, and no girls in the bedrooms. That was it. Everything else was fair game. Um, they didn't really, you know, it's, it's different, at least in my house. You know, we're, we're pretty hands-on with, with my daughters. But it, they weren't very hands-on. I mean, they were both working in, at sometimes two and three jobs. Um, they were gone quite a bit. They worked really hard. And so there was never, did you do your homework? How did you do in that test? Like, I, don't, I can't remember showing my, my folks our report cards. It must have happened at least when we were young. Um, but we were very much kind of left to our own will, our own work ethic, our own, I don't know, way to figure it out. Uh, we all worked at really young ages. I was working when I was 14. Um, you know, we didn't grow up with much. So I, I saw, you know, almost we were hovering around the poverty level for several years and on food stamps. And then my parents uh, kind of hit it big, and we went from that to a country club, and then they lost quite a bit. So we were, we were back on the dole, if you will. So it was a, kind of a fascinating childhood where I got a whole range of experiences with, with people and material things and, you know, the love of family. And I don't know, it was, a, it was as good a childhood as I could possibly imagine. You mentioned the ups and downs <clears throat> from a financial standpoint. Your <clears throat> siblings, it seems like you guys are <clears throat> all in business. Can you just explain that or add some color as to why that might be? 
Yeah. I mean, two things are pretty similar. One is um, all but one of us has advanced degrees, um, some multiple. So I've got uh, my older brother has his law degree and his MBA from Duke and a master's from, from BC in social work. And uh, my brother Michael has uh, a JD MBA from Georgetown. And my sister Shannon has a uh, master's from Penn. So, and I went to HBS uh, for my MBA. So, you know, my brother Matthew, he's the, he's the smart one who decided not to go to, for um, higher ed and any more learning. But um, so education was really important to my parents. They never talked about it much, but I think maybe because they were so schooled, um, maybe that was something we focused on quite a bit. So that, I, I thought that was kind of interesting. Um, um, in terms of business, <clears throat> I mean, look, we're f um, kids of entrepreneurs. So I think we grew up around the business. If, if you're in a family business, which we were, or several, um, you know, we grew up when my parents just started doing team building training and quality circles and all that kind of stuff. And they had big clients, Xerox and ADP and McDonald's and Texaco. And, you know, we were collating books. I mean, I remember being seven years old and being in, you're way too young for this, but <clears throat> the old copiers, they were like, they had like a purple ink to them. And I remember having purple ink all, all over my hands as we were just collating all these books. And um, so we, you know, we were kind of in it, in and around it. Um, my parents were, they would bring home people quite a bit from in and around their business. They traveled a lot. We, um, <clears throat> I remember being 13 years old and my mom, um, I was acting up. I was a bit of a, a handful as a kid. And my mother had the sense that I didn't really understand what it was like to be her. And so she took me out to Colorado. Um, she was doing a Xerox training with some sales managers. <clears throat> and I'm a 13-year-old kid. And, um, and I just remember watching her walk into this room. At that point, it was predominantly men in the room. Um, and she just wowed this room, just backwards and forwards, and made them laugh and made them cry and made them think. And I just remember looking at her with the widest eyes and saying, like, wow, I can't believe that's my mom, and I want to do that someday. And uh, it had a really incredible impact on me in terms of just understanding the power of c commanding a room. I mean, I remember coming home. The other thing from that same trip, I was coming home on the, on the plane with her, and I remember her, like, going crazy, flipping through all of the evaluation forms. And she had, you know, there were 80 people in the room. She had 78 fives, which were the highest grade, and two fours, and she obsessed over these fours. And I, I have some of that in me as well. So, um, <clears throat> so it was, I, I don't know why or how we all chose business. Um, we have four of us running companies now. So, um, and my sister's about to, to start a company. So it'll be five of us running companies. So I, it's, you know, it's quite remarkable. How does it make you feel when you recall that story about seeing your mom do amazing work and make an impact and inspire and connect with people? Well, I think about, um, <clears throat> you know, as a father of three daughters, I, I think about it a lot. Um, I think the world is really different now, but having um, a mom who was such a powerhouse and growing up in the 70s and 80s and seeing a woman entrepreneur run businesses and then be consulting and counseling these high-powered executives from these Fortune 500 companies, um, I definitely think about the impact and influence in how I want my daughters to be raised. I think about this organization, and I'm really proud of, you know, I, I oftentimes say I was raised by a strong woman. I'm, I'm raising three strong women. I married a strong woman, and this company is run by strong women. And you so, can feel it as soon as you walk in the door. 
Yeah, no, it's pretty amazing. You know, we have, um, you know, I could go through the laundry list of, of folks, but um, the general manager of the, of the Prudential Center, top 10 book building in the in the world is Donna Daniels, who I've worked with for several years, and she's a world-class executive. Um, and, you know, Jillian Frechette is a credible chief marketing officer. I mean, we, we were lit I could go down our COO, Laura Price, you know, I could go down the down the line, but it's it's amazingly humbling um, to see such an incredible environment. And this is an environment that's very empowering, and, and women empower each other, and I, I think it's awesome. So, so that that whole thing, I think, is a, is somewhat related to both being a, a dad of daughters and, and being raised by a really strong woman. Why sports for you? Why not go another path? It sounds like from an early age, you acknowledge leadership. You acknowledge the ability to make an impact and inspire people or, or make an impact on their lives. But what about sports? What was the draw for you? You know, most of my jobs early on were labor jobs. So I dug pools one summer. I worked in... Um, landscaping, I installed vending machines. Essentially, if there were a crappy job to have, I had it. And I loved it. I, I, I always enjoyed working. I like get my hands dirty. Um, I, I never struggled getting out of bed to go to work. And then in, in summer of my junior year at Villanova, I had an internship at Advantage International, which is now Octagon. And what struck me more than anything else was how happy everybody was. And they were young, and they were good looking, and they were working hard and playing hard. But I, I, I hadn't been in a work environment where Monday wasn't a bad day. And I was struck by the energy and passion. And I thought, as I was leaving at the end of the summer, and I had a lot of fun, it was in Georgetown, and I just thought, man, if I could ever be in a business like this, where you can come in this excited about work, this is what I want to do. What was your vision for your career back then? Do you remember what you were thinking for yourself? or? Yeah, I wasn't thinking about anything, yeah. other than my next date, I think, yeah. unfortunately. Um, I loved learning, for one, so, um, you know, I spent, I, I was a nerd in school, like, I took 8.30 in the morning classes and never missed a class, and I was taking electives like advanced stats and calculus, and, you know, I was not, not like, you know, I had a lot of fun in school, for sure, but I did love to learn, and then, um, you know, it wasn't until, like, a really failed interview that my mom made me go on that I kind of started to get, get in gear and get in shape and, and start to be ready for a career. Do you think that ability to go to class at 8.30 in the morning is nature? Is it nurtured? Do your siblings have that as well? Where do you think that comes from? You know, we've all, we're all been pretty early morning people. Um, so I'm not sure if it's nature versus nurture. I think that, um, you know, I had this, there's a guy named Marty Ehrlichman. He's um, Barbara Streisand's longtime manager. And um, I sat with him at the Beverly Hills Hotel. It's probably three years ago. And he asked me if I wanted to know the secret to life. And I was like, yeah, I'm really interested in that. You know, so, um, and he said it's two things. He said, <coughs> excuse me. He said, one, when you wake up in the morning, you put your feet on the ground, and you're so passionate about your life, your career, your family, anything you want to, you, you just bounce out of bed and, and pop to it. And he said, number two is um, you come home with equal fervor and equal passion. And I think it's a really simple way to think about, or at least how I think about, you know, life, career, and family. What do you do now when you wake up in the morning and you put your feet on the ground? What, what sort of routines or habits do you do uh, when you wake up? My, my morning routine is a, is a bit erratic. So I have a, a daughter who goes to Bible study at 6 in the morning. So um, every other week I'm up in the morning driving her there. And then I, I sit there while she, and I work while she's in there and then, then take her back. And 
<clears throat> and while that might be troubling to some people to wake up that early, um, anybody who has teenagers, in particular teenage daughters, if you can get 40 minutes a day one-on-one with your daughter and have the chance to talk about life and friends and dating and sports and science and social studies and anything, um, and I get to that, that chance um, every day, every other week, it's a pretty special time. So that's how I start my day. Um, then I usually do a quick little workout if I don't have a later workout that, that day and then, uh, hop in the car and my day starts. I'm either in Camden or Newark or New York, typically. And uh, you just referenced the sort of global nature, not necessarily global, but you guys are in a lot of different spots. And one of the things I was really curious about is how do you manage in all of these different spaces and places, even overseas and how do you manage all that and how do you build a culture? across the board, or how do you think about culture as it relates to all the different functions that you have? Yeah, so the management part is, is relatively simple. I don't know if it's easy, but it's definitely simple. It's, um, I've had a pretty consistent track record of being able to spend my life and time and career around magnificent talent. So Hugh Weber and Jake Reynolds and uh, Chris Heck are the three presidents. Um, and they, they, quite frankly, like they run this business. Um, and I'm here to lead and guide, and I talk strategy and financing and work on growth. But, but man, when you have talent like that, uh, the, the best thing I can do is block and tackle so that they can lead and manage at a really world-class level. So that's, the, I guess, the secret, if you will. And then from a, from a cultural standpoint, you know, I've, I've been in this business almost 25 years now, and... You know, I think I've seen the good, the bad, and the ugly. And what I love, let me put it this way. There were times in my career where, like, I couldn't believe the work environment I was in. And I mean that on not a very positive note. And I remember saying, like, or thinking to myself, if I'm ever in charge, if I ever have this opportunity, I'm going to make wherever I work the greatest place in the world to work. And I don't, I don't know if this is the greatest place in the world to work. It's the greatest place in the world I've ever worked. And, and I, Why? I'm happy when I walk in. I think that we have an incredible understanding of our mission, um, our values that we live out loud. Um, I work with people I love, like, and respect. Um, it's, a, it's a debate culture. Um, we're never satisfied. We fight tooth and nail for everything. We, nothing's ever given to us. We've earned it. We have a really long-term approach, which I love. Uh, we're always looking to grow. I mean, can you imagine being in a business where you're always thinking about what could, what could we do to make this bigger, stronger, faster? It, it's fun. I mean, I, I can tell you I've never had more fun in my life. As you said, the mission, what, how do you guys define your mission here? Well, we, we, we want to be the greatest place to work in the world, led by the most talented people in the world, defined by um, – their character and how they approach their work. And we want to impact the communities where we live, work, and play. And we want to win. That's a pretty good mission, you know? And so from my standpoint, um, it's everything that I love about the work world. Um, these, these sports and entertainment companies are such incredible platforms to, to make the world a little bit better. And, um, and here you know, at HBSC, we actually commit 76 hours of service um, to the community. And I actually, you know, look, I coach coach girls basketball. Um, I do quite a few things with my church. And that's the way I serve. And I serve in and around our um, what we do here. But we'll shut down the office once a month. And you do, But you don't have to. You can go do your thing. You can mentor kids. You can go 
walk dogs for the elderly. You can go in a, in a, in a I don't know, whatever, go to a soup kitchen. You can feed the homeless. Like, I, I don't really care what you do. I just want you to serve. And this is a platform to do that. And we've done incredible things. You've mentioned uh, faith and religion. And I know you've been on a little bit of a journey as, as it relates to that. Can you just share a little bit about how you think about spirituality and what your framework is? Sure. I mean, I, I don't, I, I don't, um, one thing I do not do is jam my spirituality at work. Um, I, or my religion at work. I think spirituality is a little different. Um, in terms of spirituality, I, um, I've always had like a, a great belief in a higher power. I went through a conversion um, where I was rebaptized in the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints um, about three years ago. That's the faith my wife grew up in. And it's been incredible. I, I, I can tell you I've been kind of recentered and reoriented. Um, you know, there's some lifestyle changes with that, with that faith, like no coffee, you know, no alcohol, no tobacco, and all that kind of stuff. And you pay 10% of your, your earnings to the church, you tithe. Um, and you have to work. That's the other, the, the other magic to it is you actually are given a, what we call a calling or a job. And so mine, I get to work with, you know, teenage young men, ages 16 to 18. And I'm a, I'm a bit of a, I don't know, advisor or guide. And I get to talk to them like you might talk to your son or your nephew. You know, I'm kind of that voice that if you can't talk to your dad about something, you know, I'm, I'm one of those voices. And it's so, I don't know, uplifting, empowering, <clears throat> enlightening. And I've learned so much um, just from giving a little bit. You mentioned coaching your kids. And I think in mm -hmm. every interview I listened, in preparation for this, you throw in that you're a coach. And so I maybe not, you've never heard me say good coach. That's, the, that's that. the problem. Well, I actually know some people who know you, and I was trying to get some dirt on you before this, and they mentioned some stuff about your coaching as well. But we'll we'll leave that. We'll we'll talk about that off off air. Yeah. But I'm just curious, like why is why is coaching your kids something that you really value? Boy, I think that um, for I think team sports are a great teacher. And um, my wife said something to me. Boy, this goes way back. It's probably 15 years ago. My oldest was really young, and she, I came home late from some trip. I was traveling at that point five days a week, and I was trying to connect with my daughter, and um, I didn't really know how to connect with kids or little kids. And she said, Scott, like, all she wants to do is be with you. Like, if it's something you want to do, engage her in it, and then you'll have that connection. And that's when I first started coaching. She was five years old, and I, I remember it was a terrible co little coaching story. Um, but it's five-year-old girls basketball. And I, I am a little competitive and intense. You may have heard that in your, all your diligence. And so it's five-year-old girls basketball in like some crappy rec league in Summit, New Jersey. And, and I, the referee kept telling my girls to back off. And I kept saying like, just take it. Take the ball. Just take it. My daughter would take it, dribble down. You know, it's on these little six-foot rims, you score. You know, like Ella, take it. Ella would take it, dribble down. Anna, just take the ball. Just take it. The ref's like back off. And I was like, why don't you ref and let me coach? He blows the whistle, walks over. My wife's sitting on the stage, and I can feel her glare from across the gym. And the guy says loud enough so everybody in the gym can hear it, if I hear one more word out of you, I will personally escort you out of this gym. And that's the last time I've ever talked negatively to a referee. Why? What did you learn from that I experience? I learned that it's just, you know, I think, here's what I think you learn from basketball. I think you learn how to win and how to lose. I think you learn how to lead and how to follow. I think you learn about sacrifice and sweat. I think you learn about how to get
get knocked on your butt and get back up, um, how to fight through some pain, um, a will to compete. And I think for, for you know, I, 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 boys have had this advantage for years. And now with the participation numbers of girls rising so quickly, I think, I think the young women are catching up. But I think for, for young women, I, I can't imagine a better teacher than basketball or another team sport. Um, and so for me, like, I don't want to get in the way of that. I want to foster it. And so I think sometimes, and unfortunately, I learned a lesson really early on in my tenure as a coach, and I was making it about me. That's the lesson. That's the lesson I got. Um, when actually, like, the way I measure success is not wins and losses, ironically enough, given my day job. Um, I measure successes um, by how many girls come back and play the next year. So I want to make it fun. I want to teach them how to compete, and I want them to fall in love with the game. And if I do that, it's a huge successful season. And my daughters are okay. Um, they're not great players. My older one played in high school for three years, played varsity for three years, awesome. My sophomore in high school just made the varsity team, which is great. It's a very good program. She'll, she'll be fine. And my little one, we'll see. She's only 13. But I like them to play a team sport, and they kind of know the drill. It's interesting because my work is coaching, and it's different than being on the sideline, but my job is to help people get from where they are to where they want to go. And especially when I started out doing the sports psychology part of my coaching, it was really hard to not be attached to the wins and losses. And, uh, like, I worked with a lot of golfers, and I remember looking and seeing how they're doing. And in golf, only one guy wins, and the rest of the field is a loser. And I think for me separating from the wins and losses and realizing that if you're coaching someone, their success is their success. And their lack of success, I'm not even going to call it failure, but lack of success is their lack of success. And I was just talking to someone about this recently. Like, I have gotten much better at compartmentalizing that piece and knowing that, hey, I do a good job. How do I know I do a good job if they keep coming back, kind of like you said, and they keep wanting to learn and grow and develop themselves as people and, and professionally as well. I'm curious for you because... I've been also behind the scenes in a sports organization and seen a basketball and a hockey team, and uh, it's a lot of sports. And how do you emotionally stay level over the course of seasons when there's a lot of there's a lot of competition that you're watching and that you have a rooting interest for? Yeah, I I don't do a great job of that. Like I'm I when I walk into an arena, look, this is our business place for one. So this is where we do business. We invite guests. To, to do more business um, here. But, but when I go and watch the game, I'm always in the stands and I'm very active in the game and I ride the highs and lows. Like I get on the roller coaster and ride it and I love it. And I, I do the best I can to, after the game, to wind down by the time I get home. I learned that lesson early on too. I, you know, I had a really hard time early on shutting down losses. The wins, the wins don't stay with you. The losses stay with you. Um, the heartbreaking losses crush you. Um, and I've, I mean, don't use the word compartmentalize. Like I compartmentalize, I take that window and that 45 minute drive is my window. And if I want to whine, if I want to cry, if I want to complain, if I want to be sad, if I want to sulk, if I want to be angry, if I want to be mad, if I want to say things I shouldn't say, it's in that window. When I get home, it's off me. I'm back. And, um, and that, that, I think that has um, prolonged my career for sure. It sounds like that's something you made an intentional shift to compartmentalize that and have some boundaries as far as what you bring into the house and what you don't. I'm curious, as you sit here right now, what are you working on on yourself? Like, what part of you do you feel like you still need to get better at and are, are focused on and, and are working on? 
That's a that's a loaded question as well. I, I I think that I think about life as that whole journey. So I mean, I think about life spiritually and how I can grow spiritually. I think about myself as a leader in this business. Um, I just had a great conversation with uh, an incredible executive here, Brad Tron, who's our general counsel, just about his growth and development. It's very mo- like well, you know, everybody has something that gets them out of bed in the morning. Um, mine is developing the, the next great leaders in this business, and and so. That that how can I be a better leader? How can I express um, gratitude better? How can I be more approachable? How can I engage in the in the lives kind of 360 view of others? Um, and there's my uh, mental, spiritual, physical health. Um, so I'm, I'm always working to try to keep my body healthy. What goes in um, and and with through exercise. And uh, so I, I yeah I, I'm I'm kind of full circle. You know I, I always want to be reading and learning. So. Um, so that that's i mean it's i don't think there's ever a finished product i think that's the fun of life yeah you mentioned uh before we started recording executive coaching as a resource that you've leveraged in the past can you just add some information as far as what's been useful or what's not been useful there yes um you know my my folks were coaches as well um and my older brother went through a long period of time he's running a company now but before that he was an executive coach and and I, I, you know, I, I very much think of it like therapy, if you will. Um, people, maybe people don't want to call it that or be that, but you get to a point in your career and there's nobody to really talk to. Um, there's a, I joined this group called YPO about 15 years ago, Young Presence Organization, and that was like therapy for me. Like I actually got in a room with eight guys once a month for four hours and we talked about life, love, the pursuit of happiness, business, families, kids, spiritual well-being, all that kind of stuff. And and I think that's what a coach provides. Um, I had a great coach, Trisha Nadoff, when I was at Madison Square Garden. I was going through a particularly hard transition when I got in there. And she um, definitely helped me see the world really differently. And um, and she had a lot of funny anecdotes. And, and she said a lot of things that I didn't really embrace or get until years later. Um, cause I, I don't, I'm not sure, I'm sure you see this. I'd be interested to know if you see it, but I, sometimes you're not ready to, to hear it. I was listening. Um, she talked about meditation a lot. And at that time in my life, there is no chance I could sit still and meditate. No, I mean, there's zero chance. And, um, you know, she talked about being in this warrior phase and how I had to emerge from the warrior phase. And I kept saying, but I want to be a warrior. She's like, no, 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 no. You need to be a sage. You know a lot. Like, you can help people. You can do that. I said, no, no, no. I like fighting. Like, I, lo- I love. It was like that movie 300 when they line up all those bodies. That's what I like to do, you know. And um, But I just wasn't ready. And then I, you know, I matured. I got older. Life happened. And I, I started to see the world. And every time something would happen, I would send her a text or an email and be like, hey, just want to let you know. I was meditating again today and stuff like that, which she got a kick out of. But, but I, I think it was a, a, like a transformative part of my career and my life and I think she helped me even articulate things that I was thinking and feeling but never had an outlet I never felt comfortable enough for an outlet to actually express them it resonates so much with me uh you've got a couple years on me so I'm still still going through it maybe 30 yeah (laughs) not not quite and uh I went through a program at Georgetown University, and it was the Institute for Transformational Leadership for Executive Coaching. And we talked about transforming over and over and over again. 
And I kept saying, like, well, what if I don't want to transform? Like, I like me. I got right. this. I outkick my coverage on my wife. I've got these two beautiful kids. I love what I do for a living. Like, things are pretty good. And I, like, kept fighting it until at the end it was kind of like, oh, transformation can be very subtle. And, That's and, right. and very small and very minute. And so that was big for me. And then the fighter part that you're talking about. Man, like I was always small when I was a kid and undersized, and I chose basketball as a sport because I was a stubborn little shit of a kid. Should have played with us this morning. Yeah, well, I'm playing tomorrow, and maybe maybe you'll come play with us tomorrow. Um, but like I've always been a fighter, and I think that's part of my secret sauce. That's part of what makes me unique and special and and different. And I was just I just did an offsite retreat for a nonprofit. And the CEO was telling a story, and he was literally like a fighter growing up, like would get into scraps and, uh, you know, got his head on straight and had some stuff happen and, and shifted. And he was like, I used to be a fighter. And I looked at him, I was like, nah, you're still a fighter. You're trying to save the world, and you're fighting that fight. It's just you're not using your fists anymore. So I think you still probably have that dog in you, that fight in you. Um, but you mentioned meditation and, and, and mindfulness as well. So I'm curious, how do you leverage that? How do you think about it? Um, what do you think about that? Well, I mean, we've done quite a bit here at work, um, you know, adding, we have our chief marketing officer here actually teaches yoga as well. So we make that available to, to the staff here. We've um, on our go for, we have an annual offsite called the go forward. Um, we've brought in uh, mindfulness and, and meditation teachers to help learn the actual art of meditation. Um, I, I'm into prayer as well. I think, you know, I think in today's world, which I think is very unsettling and I think it's um, hmm, rife with conflict. I think social media has added an element where we're curating our own media, and I think that adds a whole bunch of complications in terms of how we see the world. I think that you need to be still. I don't know how else to say it. And, and still, like, I think when you hear the word meditation, if you haven't done it, you think about like somebody sitting cross-legged, you know, with their fingers touching, yelling, um, 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 you know, I might be the only guy who's seen the movie Eat, Pray, Love, and read the book. Don't judge me for that. But I will say... I'm, I'm mindful. I'm not judging you. Okay, good. <laughs> but I, I will say that, that that, you know, meditation can be before you go to bed, you, you can lay down in your bed and clear your head. Um, or you can just focus on like the buzzing sound of a fan. Um, or you can, you can sit up and meditate, or you can just be still in a car, just be still. Just put your phone away, turn it down, turn it off, get it away from you. Turn down the music, you know? Put the kids to bed and like hear and feel and appreciate the stillness of life. And I think your, our brains need um, a break. Um, our minds need a break. And I think it's like food for the soul. And so to the extent you can do it, and it's not like a, 40-minute commitment, like a workout, it's three minutes a day, you know? Um, so I, I'd recommend, if you haven't done it, to just download an app. There are plenty of apps out there. Calm's a great one um, that you can do and just, just find peace. I love that. Going back to the culture and, and what you're trying to create here, you said we've got really talented people, and then my job is to sort of get out of the way almost. What do you look for when you're looking for talent? What are the things that you think make someone – a good fit at this organization? Fit, fit's a fascinating word because um, we challenge the word fit here just because, I don't mean to jump on it, but we, we talk about the power of diversity. And so 
So fit is something that um, you have to challenge every day or everybody will look the same and everybody will talk the same and everybody will think the same. So what we think about um, when we're talking about hiring is we, we definitely, to be f- effective and successful here in this organization, you need to be able to roll up your sleeves um, and be a little scrappy. Uh, you need to be a hard worker. You need to be intellectually curious. You need to be able to laugh at yourself. Um, you need to be tough enough to have a strong command of what you're thinking and be able to express it. Um, and you need to have high character and have high integrity. And I think those are just some characteristics and values we look for. Um, but but hopefully those values and characteristics come in all shapes and sizes. And um, and I and I think that I think the biggest mistake some executives make or some friends of mine make that are running companies is that they think they're in charge of the culture. Um, Hugh Weber, who's a president here, he's, he always says, culture, says, culture is what you tolerate and what you celebrate. Laura said it earlier. So it's so great, right? Yeah, yeah, it's so great. No, I just love that because it's so true. And, and, and that's fine as a leader, but culture is, I mean, like we can set the, you know, the leaders here, we have an incredible leadership team. We can do all we can to, to roll out this fancy vision statement and this mission and our values, and we can talk about it, we can be transparent, and we can get up and we can have town halls, and we can have face-to-faces where we engage people, and we can write them letters and make them read a book and take them to off-sites. All that stuff is great, and we do it. But at the end of the day, every single person that comes in here either makes the culture better or worse. And, um, and if there's a piece of paper on the ground, they can either pick it up or leave it there. And so from our perspective, it's like we tell every single person that comes in here, it's like, it's on you. Like, you have to make this the greatest place in the world to work. Like, we, we can block and tackle. That's all. You know, this is now, it's now 600 people and growing. Um, you know, so we, we've got a, a long way to go, but, but this is a good place. I love that you challenged me on fit, and that's something I want to think a little more about and what the potential word is there that you're looking for. I don't know. Do you have a word? Because I, I, I think that's a really thoughtful thought. I think alignment, maybe. Yeah. You know, we, we, we talk about, um, yeah, I can just use myself as an example. When I was um, fired from Madison Square Garden and I was on the beach, not literally, figuratively, um, I just kept thinking about, like, okay, what do I want to do? Who do I want to do it with? Like, what does my filter look like? And, and one of the things was, I, you know, I, I wanted value alignment. And when I met with Josh Harris and David Blitzer, my two bosses now, um, I, I got it. They got it. Or I got them or they got me. But, but more importantly, I was just aligned with how they were thinking about everything, about we wanted to grow the greatest company in the world. We wanted to grow, okay? We wanted to win. Uh, we wanted to leverage sports to make a difference in the community. We wanted to make this a family, but with the discipline of a private equity held company. Like that's like when we're all saying the same thing over and over. Like, okay, we have alignment. The rest of the stuff, the 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 back and forth, the nits and nats, the argument over a strategy or a tactic or something goes wrong and we have to have a real hard discussion. That stuff gets so much easier if you're lined up here. It occurred to me that. Uh when you, when you were talking about we can do an offsite, we can do our mission, our vision of values, that that's a lot of the work your parents did. Yeah. And so I'm curious for you, do you have conversations with them? I don't know if they're still around, but do you have conversations with them about how it's different being in it 
versus working on it and, and how, how they see things and maybe how you see things. And I'm just curious about that dynamic. Yeah. Well, my, my dad passed away two years ago, sadly, but, um, sorry to hear about that. That's okay. My mom is, um, is she's still going strong. She got her PhD when she was 65. I think I said it before, which I always smile when I say it because I think that's awesome. Like that to me is, that is what I want to be. Like I want to always be learning, always be stretching, always going. Um, but to answer your question directly, yeah, I, I talked to my, my folks a lot, my dad when he was alive and, and uh, not so much anymore, but, but um, as I was emerging as a leader, um, I had my mom come in and do a bunch of training with the two, maybe three different companies I was in and that's kind of funny. Like, hey, here's my mom. She's going to run us through a communication exercise. It's kind of funny to think of it now. But, um, but she's a world-class exec. Um, I love her DNA. Like, she's just, she gets people. She just has this amazing connection with people. Um, and um, I don't know. I think she's had this amazing way to, she was very confident but never had this crazy ego. She always had a way to kind of, make people feel like they were really special. She, she's an awesome lady. So, so yeah, I, I talked to them tactically quite a bit if I was having a business um, management issue. Not so much the business, but a business of my boss I was struggling with or, or a certain executive. Yeah, I, I talked to them quite a bit. It was, it was a great resource. When I work with executives, I often find that there are ones that want to really be strategic and get away from the managerial side of things. Like, hey, I want to just work on strategy. I'm kind of tired or burnt out from managing. And then I have others who say, oh, I just love the management. And, you know, the strategic part, not so much. But as a CEO, there's a lot of management that needs to happen, and there's also strategy. So I'm curious for you, where do you feel most alive? Is it more on the strategy or more on the management? That's such a great question. So I'm transitioning a bit. So I love the management. So I'm, I'm definitely like your executives that loves to roll up the sleeves. I love this business and every aspect of it. I want to actually understand how we're selling a ticket and how direct-to-consumer and content will change the face of this business. That's really interesting to me. Um, I like looking at the ad campaigns. I like studying the game entertainment. I was just in San Francisco walking through the Chase Center, the new arena out there, and I had 500 questions for Rick Welch, who's the, the boss out there about what they built and why they built it and how this, why are they showing signs? Of, you know, I mean, I, I love that part of it. It just won't grow the company. And so, so in the last six months, you know, I've begun to spend much more time as, as the business has stabilized to figure out, okay, how are we doubling this business in the next five years? And it's, it, I should not be spending my time on the next uh, ticket we sell. Well, that's a great place for us to, to wind down. I just want to acknowledge you and say I'm always interested in when people are obsessed with becoming and when they're obsessed with being. And you are someone who is a lifelong learner who is always trying to become, become, how can I become more? And you're also able to be. And I think that's rare. I think many of us struggle with that. Like we are either on that treadmill and running and becoming and doing more because we think doing more will cause us to be more. But you have this awesome blend of like the ability to be while also become. And so that's something that I'm going to take with me and, and continue to strive toward for myself is figure out when I need to be with my family, I'm with my family. Uh, when I need to be running and ripping and, and working hard and becoming and learning and growing, that I'm also doing that. So I just want to thank you. Uh, also want to thank you for your time. I mean, you're you're a busy guy and, and, and doing a lot of stuff. So to take some time and create some space for someone like me, uh, just really grateful for that. 
Um, also, uh, I'll I'll put in your Twitter handle, but you have you know your Twitter handle. Yeah, and, at Scott O'Neill. And LinkedIn, you're also really active there. Yep. Um, so we'll put that in the show notes. I'm on Twitter at Brian Levinson, Instagram intentional underscore performers. And is there anything else you want to give a platform to or a megaphone to? Yeah. Just, really just care you about? as a coach. So if I need one, I'm going to call you, Brian. Yeah. That's for sure. And um, you, you clearly are on to something. I wish you the best of uh, continued success with this podcast and hope to see you at a game soon. Thanks, Scott. Thank you for listening to Intentional Performers with Brian Levinson. Here is this week's episode gem. And I remember saying, like, or thinking to myself, if I'm ever in charge, if I ever have this opportunity, I'm going to make wherever I work the greatest place in the world to work. And I don't, I don't know if this is the greatest place in the world to work. It's the greatest place in the world I've ever worked. <laughs>